The Questions Log, Week 2 Tio Morrow is getting nervous. Around the world, mad scientists have started disappearing. A Kryptonian faith has taken hold among the youth with the fallen Superboy as Christ. And our future no longer appears to be certain, even if you happen to be a time traveler. I'll be honest, if I'm going to get to the bottom of all this, I'm going to need some help. This is 52 Pickup. Are you ready? This is episode two of 52 Pickup, a podcast about the greatest comic you've never heard of. I'm professional DC Comics expert, Alex Jaffe. And I'm Gita. Hey, Gita. It's Gita. <laughs> it's Gita. I'm just Gita. That's all I'm doing right now is being Gita. How you doing, Gita? <laughs> I'm doing really good. I'm I'm having a pretty good day today. As you know, I caught COVID-19, the deadly virus that is now in our midst. It is among and, us. And uh, I wasn't doing good for a little bit, but I've recovered. I had just had my last Paxlova dose and my mouth tastes like a nickel. <laughs> Tastes like you licked the giant penny in the back cave. It really literally does taste like that. It's so <laughs> nasty. It's way better than having COVID, but it's like it's like a really confusing sensation. It's not the uh, most ridiculous supervillain origin I've heard, but people have gone mad over worse. <laughs> All you need is one bad day, I've heard. So <laughs> That's what Alan Moore taught us. <laughs> so we have a really... Fun issue. Again, the story has picked up some momentum, and I'm really excited to talk about it with you. Yeah, we're going to get into some of the characters who are going to be a lot more important to the story who we didn't get to in the first issue. Uh, we're going to see that unfold over this first month of stories. Yeah, it starts with getting back to the old depressing elongated man story. And, uh, uh, other than that, we got Renee Montoya yep. kind of coming face to face with the question. We've got some more follow up to that mysterious abduction of Dr. Savannah we saw in the last issue. And uh, we're going to see the introduction of a certain Wonder Girl, maybe two. Uh, <laughs> It'll be fun. Uh, but before we get into that, how about we talk talent? Yeah, let's talk talent right now. All right. Well, We've got, once again, the very problematic Joe Bennett on pencils this week. For more on that, listen back to last week's episode. Uh, this week, he's got Jack Jadson, another frequent Brazil-based collaborator that he's been working with for years, filling in for Rui Jose. We've got letters by Travis Lanham, who's replacing Nick J. Napolitano, who moves to the backup, which we'll talk more about later. Uh, Napolitano and Lanham previously worked together on Infinite Crisis, which is a name you're going to keep hearing throughout this series. This is kind of this sequel to Infinite yeah. Crisis. But don't worry, you don't have to read Infinite Crisis. I sure didn't the first time I read 52. Maybe preferable not to. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think this comic makes Infinite Crisis look more interesting than it actually is. Absolutely. And you know, that's true for the stories leading up to Infinite Crisis as that's well. That's so true. The Actually, the, the story that got me terminally obsessed with comics is the Countdown to Infinite Crisis story featuring Blue Beetle. Oh, of course. That one shot. That one shot is really well written. It is also clearly a representation of things that Dan Didio did not like character assassination. Yeah. <laughs> essentially. But it is an incredibly, like, it's written from the heart by people who do care about those characters. And I think it's 
terrifically well-written and I think has made Ted Kord an extremely iconic character when he was kind of a niche fave before that. And it's still influencing the world around us. I know you got the terrible COVID-19 virus that has flooded our world, but (laughs) I got to see the Blue Beetle movie and that Countdown to Infinite Crisis one-shot is very much still a part of the Blue Beetle zeitgeist. You cannot talk about Blue Beetle without talking about that issue. And maybe I'll get into more specifics about that when we get to see the movie together. Yes. If it's still in theaters by the time you're not sick anymore. I would really like to see it. It's too bad that every movie is only in theaters for like a week and a half nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> really I mean, sucks. it'll it'll be on Max or something. We could watch it streaming. Uh, oh my God, yeah. I mean, if you want to hear us talk about the movies, as we said previously, I believe, you're going to have to pay us for it. Yeah. These will be back up. There'll be bonus features. But we do hope to talk a little about how the ideas in these comics get translated into what the DC Extended Universe has become if it is really a coherent idea whatsoever. Right. Because I, I feel like the stuff that happened here is really the basis for the kinds of the, the ways that the characters are expressed in extraneous media at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. But we'll get into that later behind a paywall. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you've already joined us behind that paywall. Welcome, 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 faithful listeners. We appreciate it. Do you want to get started talking about the issue? Yeah, let's get right into it. Why beat around the bush? Uh, we open right on our title, which uh, we had to wait for a little bit last week. Our title this week is Looking Back at Tomorrow. Uh, do you know what Looking Back at Tomorrow is a reference to, Gita? I do not. Looking Back at Tomorrow was a section from Epcot's original Horizons attraction from 1983, uh, which is sort of, I assume, Mark Wade, because Mark Wade writes the elongated man sections, uh, him kind of uh, hearkening back to the retrofuturism that Epcot was representational of, this uh, nostalgic look at a future that was brighter than the present we currently find ourselves in, which is particularly cogent when we're talking about Elongated Man, considering he's kind of a scion of that Silver Age, uh, contrasted with where we are now post-identity crisis with him. Referencing to Epcot specifically, like that was a, and not just a, an attraction, I learned this from Defunct Land, but sure. it was an attempt for Walt Disney to really dial into sort of his futurist uh, ideology, to create not a template for a self-sustaining town, literally the world of tomorrow. And right. that kind of retrofuturist nostalgia is all over DC Comics, it's especially in the Metropolis Superman sort of aesthetic expression, right? But it's also like problematic. It's something that we'll we'll get into, especially when we talk about the history of the DCU backups that are in these issues. Oh yes, there it becomes complicated really, really, really quickly because so many people join on to DC at so many different times. They're nostalgic for so many different things. Every writer who joins DC has nostalgia for a different era, which is why we constantly see all of these reboots. The people coming on want the comics to return to the place. They were when they were a fan of comics. And that's kind of a cycle that DC is going to find itself trapped in for the foreseeable future. I uh, get on board or get out of the way is what I say. Uh, it's all beautiful. Yeah. Every single era of the comics has something to appreciate in them, except for the ones I hate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> you know, looking back at tomorrow, also literal. Uh, there is a character who will appear later in this issue named T.O. Morrow, 
who we're going to get to know very well throughout the proceedings of 52. Making a deranged uh, face at yeah. Jaffe right now. Tio Morrow is a classic Justice League, Justice Society villain who created the android Red Tornado, who was kind of built to infiltrate the Justice Society and the Justice League and tear them apart, but he becomes a hero. Uh, he's one of the many mad scientists who we're going to be talking about later. But right now, we're opening on Elongated Man in a Graveyard. And you want to tell us what he's doing there? Oh, my God. So Elongated Man is chilling in a graveyard, as you do, with a guy who's just uh, who is is giving him a source. He's giving him a clue for a mystery. He's looking at a grave. And as he goes to this conversation with this guy who's a big uh, uh, Elongated Man fan, in fact, was rescued. Wearing a booster gold jacket. Yeah, he's like a he's a. A representation, clearly, of a, a nostalgic comic book nerd, mm-hmm. right? He is really singing his praises and was, in fact, rescued by uh elongated man at this place called Dreamland Park, which I thought might be a reference to a specific thing, but you think is just a general reference to Disney? Yes. I went through every elongated man story to find this Dreamland Park thing. Never happened. Incredible. What Dreamland Park is, is a reference to one of the original amusement parks that were on Coney Island in like the 1910s. So That's so interesting. It's kind of, once again, Mark Wade, like we talked about last week with Moonlighting, kind of pulling references from the real world to feed the themes of the story going on here about like that nostalgia for the childish joy of a bygone age. Sick. I mean, I think that that actually works better than it being a specific reference to a specific thing from a comic. Yeah. Because I think, again, like something that I think that nerd culture really misses is like unfortunate is that these writers are influenced by more things than just comics. Absolutely. Like the world around you influences your (laughs) your worldview and like what you believe about things. So evaluating comic books only from a perspective of other things that happened in comic books, it gives you like horse blinders. Basically, without Bruce Willis on Moonlighting, there would be no Vic Sage and Renee Montoya. It's crazy to think about. Absolutely, and I, 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 I will get to this a little bit later in the the issue. But um, without like the Thin Man, which I watched again, and it's just a fantastic, fantastic murderous mystery. Elongated Man and his wife uh, Sue Dibney, they are direct directly influenced they're Nick by Charles, Nick absolutely. and Nora Charles. They're absolutely, you just, you will have your world enriched if you seek out the things that your favorite artists are influenced by. If you haven't seen The Thin Man, I implore you, it is such a delight. And they have a cute little dog. At least the first one. There's kind of diminishing returns as the series goes on. Yeah, the second one has this extremely young James Stewart, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's really weird. That is part of the appeal there. Yeah. Another thing that happens as, uh, which is so interesting, I really like the way that they they do this. So Elongated Man had a gimmick that signaled him as a sort of goofier Silver Age Age character. His nose wiggles every time he smells a mystery. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the sequence here... There is a little bit, it's a little gestural, but his nose starts wiggling again. <laughs> yeah, the the nose twitching, which is a staple of every single elongated man story from uh, the Detective Comics backup, which not John Broom, but Gardner Fox implemented when uh, he went from being a The Flash character to a Detective Comics Batman backup, uh, which is really when he became the mystery-solving partner to Sue Dibney, who travels the country and 
uh, tracks down mysteries. We're not going to see any specific references to old Silver Age elongated man stories, no matter how hard you look for them. Uh, but that nose twitching is too uh, enormous a staple of that era to ignore. Yeah. And I I like that it shows up in something that's tonally so dark. Like, yeah. <laughs> Ralph's story is so, 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 so dark, and it doesn't get lighter at any point. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's the darkest, I'm not going to say the darkest, but it's representative of how dark DC has become in the wake of Identity Crisis, and how even it, when we're dealing with these heavy subjects, there are still these characters who come from a place of whimsy, and they still carry that lightness in the very core of their being, no matter how dire the situation you put them in is. Uh, Ralph Dibney is always going to be elongated, man. You can't extinguish that spark. It's a really, really layered thing to do. And it's part of why the medium of comics, I think, is so hypnotic to read. You can read that and just think, oh, a reference. But you can also think, why does it show up here while he's literally standing in front of his wife's grave? Right. Right. You know, that is a symbol of him being unable to let go of the past. It's all working in symbols. Looking back at tomorrow. Yes. Like when you layer them on top of them, each other, though, the metaphor becomes so potent. It's almost too difficult to describe it in any other way. That takes us to day two. Yeah. And this is where we meet uh, Dr. Will Magnus of the Metal Men, uh, Dan DiDio's favorite character. I really like this plotline a lot. Yeah. Uh, Will Magnus, this is the introduction of the sort of the mad scientist plotline. And Will Magnus could be a mad scientist, but as we learn, he is on medication right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There but for the grace of God go I, says Will Magnus. So the metal men, if you don't know, dear listeners, uh, they are exactly as they're described. (laughs) They are. They are men of metal. Yeah. They're specific, different uh, types of metal also. There's platinum man or platinum woman, I think. It's just just platinum. Platinum, gold, lead, iron, tin. Those are the metal men. There have been others, but those are the core five. Yeah. And back in the 1960s, uh, the Metal Men were created by Robert Conniger and Ross Andrew, which is hilarious because uh, if you'd never seen a picture of Robert Conniger, uh, that's exactly what Will Magnus looks like. It's <laughs> <laughs> incredible. It's <laughs> uh, really, really funny. Yeah, the idea behind the Metal Men was to create this kind of educational action team where in every issue you would learn something about the properties of these metals while they fought crime. So Mercury would be like, don't worry, I'm the only metal that's liquid at room temperature. I got this. (laughs) Incredible. Please don't break your thermometer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) My mom used to get so paranoid that I'd bite down on the thermometer in my mouth while she was taking my temperature. Not necessary. Now I have essentially a phaser that I point at my forehead. It's pretty fun. Yeah. This conversation is also fascinating. He goes and visits Dr. T.O. Morrow, who is Mm -hmm. in a mental health slash prison facility for supervillains, which is a fun comic book concept that has not always been implemented very well. But essentially, he's like sitting in a little living room set up with a glass case on one side, which you can also understand the metaphor there almost immediately. The fourth wall is a transparent piece of glass. Right. 
Yeah, so we're looking in as if he's living permanently in a comic book panel. But he's he's <laughs> allowed to, to tinker a little bit. Exactly. Uh, he makes a reference to uh, trying to conquer uh, Earth's 1 and 2 using Red Tornado, which is a perplexing reference considering the multiverse isn't supposed to exist at this point. Uh, not the only continuity error, uh, considering in the previous scene, Will Magnus said that uh, the Metal Men had been inactive for some time when you can see them in infinite crisis in the background scenes fighting some secret society of supervillain members later issues of 52 will attempt to rectify this but it's clearly somebody fucked up um yeah over here the reason tio Morrow is able to talk about stuff like this is because of mark wade's hyper time concept that he introduced in the kingdom his sequel to kingdom come which is basically the multiverse is still around in all but name there are all these like branching timelines which is essentially a multiverse that's but we don't the have to multiverse. call it that. that's just the multiverse <laughs> that's, dude that's just that's some the writer will fix it stuff right there yeah, yeah, you know <laughs> exactly this conversation, though, is very fun. It does feel very zany. There's like a level of zaniness that to the mad scientist plotline that I've always appreciated. And you can see like the zaniness is sort of, to me, a trademark of Grant Morrison. They really like to inject humor into even really, really upsetting situations. Yeah, the mad scientist plot here is absolutely a Morrison plot, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the bit about like, oh, that old man I'm watching on TV, that's Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> it's kind of remarkable that they landed on a celebrity that is still famous now. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're not really doing much, but I could possibly imagine but him. But we still know who he is. Yeah, we still know who he is. He still does some things. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we see The Haven, uh, which is the... Uh, Home for Recovering Mad Scientists, which is a thing that does not appear like really at all after 52, but frankly, it should. It really should. If I were suddenly in charge of DC Comics, I would bring this back immediately. I would just yeah. create a book dedicated to the orderlies that work at the Haven, essentially. Yeah, in, your, in your Lois Lane book, you'd have her come here on a lead. Oh, Yes, absolutely. And she'd have a super fun and funny conversation where you get, she gets increasingly mad at all the different mad scientists. Yeah, uh, many of whom we see in this scene. Um, we get an echo of the questions defaced bat signal from the last issue on the cover of Morrow's copy of American Science, uh, showing that people are taking notice. We hear that Red Tornado is killed by a strayed Zeta Beam in a space battle in Infinite Crisis, kind of a reference to the Ram Thanagar War that was happening there. Maybe Red Tornado will show up later. He makes a cryptic reference to Red Inferno, a character we have literally never heard of before, uh, but who will continue to influence Red Tornado stories from here on out, because here's the thing about Red Tornado. Every Red Tornado story is... Essentially, someone coming up with the idea, what if there was a robot who wanted to be a man? But, like, the vision has so thoroughly eaten Red Tornado's lunch yeah. that it is impossible to tell that kind of story with him. Uh, so instead, people have kind of grabbed onto this Red Inferno, Red Torpedo sort of thing that Red Tornado is one of many robot brothers and sisters, which is kind of a little metal many. Uh, but uh, that's kind of the angle people go with. It really figures into season one of the Young Justice animated series. That's kind yes. of where they go with that. Yeah, Young Justice has Red Tornado, the comic book series, which is a humor. It's basically a humor series, I, yeah. I would say. They reimagine Red Tornado as sort of the caretaker, the beleaguered caretaker of mm -hmm. all of these children. The dead mother. Yeah, 
And it works out very, very well, but that's like a completely like radically different version of the character. Yeah. They're they're just different in every single book, essentially. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they're a robot. Yeah. To the hardcore DC fan listening to this, I know Red Tornado is not a robot. I know <laughs> uh, Red Tornado is this living tornado that was put in a robot body, but that's beyond the scope of this podcast right now. <laughs> Don't email uh, us we'll, about We'll this. talk about Althoon at a later date. <laughs> We're getting to it. Yeah, unless you really want me to talk for an hour about Althoon, Gita, we don't have to talk about Althoon. We're an Althoon bonus episode. Yeah. Just let us know if you want it. Uh, this is where we get to the big wall of mad scientists, uh, baby. This is my shit. Here we go. This is where Tio Morrow tells uh, Professor Magnus, hey, you know, a lot of mad scientists have gone missing. And quite impressively... We see a wall of newspaper clippings that don't have that kind of like lazy, cheating lorem ipsum text. All of yeah. them have actually been written, which is very rare for comics and very impressive for a comic that comes out every week. I know. It's like a detail that is completely unnecessary, but actually enriches the book if you yeah. take the time to actually read all of them. Yeah, it's one. It's the kind of thing that demonstrates just on a minute level the special care that went into 52, how it gets more attention than a monthly book does in each issue. And uh, here, right in the center, we see Dr. Savannah with the uh, subtitle Curses Foiled Again, which is not just a thing that villains say. That is a thing that Dr. Savannah himself popularized in the original I Captain Marvel no comics. no idea. Oh yeah, my the God. reason Curses Foiled Again is part of the cultural lexicon is because Savannah would say that like every time Captain Marvel defeated him. You know, I would have guessed The Simpsons if you if you really <laughs> before this moment. Like that that to me sounds like a Simpsons bit, but like a I'm, Mr. Burns. Yeah, yeah, but like that makes it's so wild how much DC Comics is just folded into the fabric of our. Well, at the culture. time it was Fawcett Comics, but yeah. Oh yes, yeah, but <laughs> essentially, you know, comic books—the ones that are predate Marvel—you really, you know, it's I think again just much more accurate to refer them as folkloric rather than mythologies, right? Because they're a part of pulp culture and pop culture as well. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily actually understood as gods, but they're part of the way that we talk about things. Yeah. The other doctors here, a couple are very interesting blasts from the past. One is Dr. Death, who is the very first recurring Batman villain. Before the Joker, before Catwoman, before everybody else, there was this guy named Dr. Death who first appeared in Detective Comics number 29, uh, two issues after Batman's debut. And he was the first villain to show up a second time after his apparent death. So this is the earliest Batman villain callback you could possibly make. Uh, there's Dr. Time, who's a uh, Silver Age Doom Patrol villain who has a big clock for a head. He recently appeared in the Doom Patrol TV show. Did you watch that? The Doom Patrol? I watched the first season of it, and we are like halfway through the second season. But David, my partner, and I just do this thing where we're super psyched on something. So we keep wanting to save it for a special occasion, yeah. and then we don't finish it. <laughs> so the first season's incredible, though. I, yeah. I think it's one of the best comic book pieces of like non-comic book media, essentially. They really translate the tone of Morrison's arc on Doom Patrol with a lot of sensitivity and a, and a lot of like faithfulness, but with the ability to translate it to a new visual medium. It's great. And they have a needle drop on one of my favorite David Bowie songs from one of his later, the, the latter half of his career. I would say that uh, the Doom Patrol show is the best 
cross-media translation of any Grant Morrison work, kind of capturing absolutely. what it is that makes a Morrison work Morrison-y. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely – I mean, I think their episode where they did Danny the Street, like, I, I wasn't sure they would yeah. be able to do it. They did. But they captured the spirit of it so incredibly well. I went back and reread Doom Patrol afterward, and I was just so impressed. Yeah, there's some very deep dives here. There's Dr. Cyclops, who's a one-off villain from the Dial H for Hero feature in House of Mystery from the 60s. There's Jeremiah Klug, the Mad Doctor, who is an original Dan Garrett Blue Beetle villain who showed up in literally one issue. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're going deep on this. Uh, but the idea is that from the most prominent to the most obscure, mad scientists are disappearing. You know what this really reminds me of? One of the influences of 52. This reminds me of the writers of Lost using the fan wiki Lostpedia in yeah. order to like remember all of the times they referenced something. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to use like I'm the writers of this comic and the artists and everyone who worked on this comic are deeply versed in comic book history. Yeah. But this has the like this, not the stink, but the delightful aroma of uh, people using the collective knowledge of fan like histories in yeah. order to tell stories about the stories you're telling. Right. Well, sometimes you gotta. Yeah. And you can see why Lost ended up feeling totally similar to this uh, and also how, why 52 is so influenced by Lost. Because it is like Lost becomes like a big sort of tangled knot of history. Mm-hmm. And DC is already a tangled knot of history. It's always been. Yeah. Uh, the thing it reminds me of is Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons Watchmen. Yeah. There's a whole subplot where mad scientists are disappearing across the world to go to this mysterious island to work on this science project. Yeah. And I wonder if any more similarities to that are going to show up in this book. Yeah. I think Morrison said at one point that when they were getting into comics, part of it was reading Alan Moore's stuff and being like, well, I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) I've been in a deep Alan Moore dive lately and all do love and respect to Grant Morrison, but you're not Alan Moore. Sorry, no. Nobody's Alan Moore. Only Alan Moore is Alan Moore. And just barely. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So true. (laughs) All right, is that is that it on the mad scientists for now? Yeah, that's that's where we go. Now, now we're back to my favorite subplot. Is it the question? Here we go. Yeah, that, that, oh that's the right God. question to ask. Uh, take- <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you get us into it? Okay, so Renee Montoya is having a bad time. That's I think how you what you should really understand about her at this moment in time. She's continuing to have off the the heels of the last issue. She was a drunk last issue and she's a drunk this issue. She's been broken up with. She's putting her bottle down on her breakup her girlfriend ex girlfriend's breakup note. Yeah, and she's continuing to drink. She's cavorting with strange women. Yeah, but suddenly a strange man enters her home. Who is this guy? It's the question. Yeah, uh, Renee fires at him. The lady she's, uh, Renee is sleeping with freaks out. He seems to disappear. Uh, all that he leaves behind is a loose leaf paper with an address on it and a question mark. 520 Kane Street, Kane being a reference to Bob Kane, uh, or perhaps to a character we're going to meet later in this series, uh, who is particularly influential. I know that 
Martha Wayne's maiden name was Kane, and her family was very influential. Maybe we'll learn more about that. It's interesting how the sort of the big uh, families of uh, Gotham end up being a larger part of also the the extremely like the the non comics comics media when yeah. they, they barely show up in the comics. Uh, but it's it's all kind of like this idea that I think started around the eighties, where like comic creators would pay tribute to the creators who came before them by naming buildings and streets after them. Yeah. Uh, so Kane Street is probably a reference to Bob Kane, who at this point was the sole credited creator of Batman, a thing that would be rectified in the mid-2010s uh, when uh, Bill Finger's family kind of went on this campaign to get him the credit he deserved. Yeah, that's like a recurring theme also for the industry of comics, isn't it? <laughs> couple things I want to point out about this scene. Uh, the question leaving notes with a question mark on them is kind of a signature of his going all the way back to the Steve Ditko era. It's something he does at the beginning of Denny O'Neill's run. Uh, it, it, it's his calling card. He leaves a card with a question mark on it. It's what he does. Sometimes it appears with disappearing ink. The other thing is I have a theory about this scene that this was edited from its original pencils. Uh, because when we see, uh, Renee and her lady friend in bed, they're both wearing lacy bras and panties. <laughs> Just doesn't make any sense. And yet, as the question walks into their apartment, you can see underwear strewn about the rest of the room. <laughs> so what this comic would have us believe is that these women were wearing two sets of underwear, yeah. <laughs> discarded the upper layer, and fell asleep together in the lower layer. Or maybe they just had extra bras and panties in their purses. Yeah. And after removing one pair, they thought, oh, I can't put on the soiled pair. Right. I must put on the clean underwear that I brought with me. What's interesting is we will see several issues from now, a scene where Renee is once again uh, in bed with a couple women, and they're all naked there, and it's fine. Uh, so clearly there was some kind of policy change, but right here, they had to keep their clothes on. Also, I don't buy Renee as a lacy bra and panties where no. she wears boxers. I'm 100% yeah. sure of that. She's a sports bra and boxers gal. Absolutely. Come on. Uh, yeah. Just you got to think about the character. It expands into all aspects of their being. You There's know? a reason that one of the most cliched questions you can ask someone is boxers or briefs. It says Absolutely. a lot about your personality. It does Genuinely, it really does. You know, the levels of comfort that you have with yourself and the way you want to feel and the way you want to express yourself, it is applies to every single thing about you. Yeah. And I just don't buy it. I don't buy that she's wearing a lacy black bra. I think that she would hate that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a choice. It's certainly a choice. <laughs> well, it does also speak to, I think, your general theory, because I think if these writers really thought about it, they probably wouldn't have put those women in a, those particular garments if they had the choice. Yeah, I mean, once again, we got to talk. We got to think about the artist here. Yeah, a, a problematic individual in his own right. So yes. I, I'm not sure what was going on in his head. Yeah, but I don't think this was a Keith Giffen call. All right, on our next day, we see Booster Gold. Oh, it's the Booster Gold stuff, isn't it? Yeah, we're back to Booster, baby. Oh my god! So the. Big takeaway from here, he is doing some heroism You based on Skeets' knowledge of what it, to him is the past, but what to us is the present. Yeah. And uh, he is trying to save a plane from crashing, and he does successfully. But also, 
there are some hints that Skeets' knowledge of the, the past, present, future is not actually accurate anymore. And things aren't lining up. This is something that was t- talked about in the first issue a little bit when Skeets has a little freak out. But they start teasing this idea again. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, this may be like the last time you ever hear about it. <laughs> yeah, it's very much this early thing that Skeets is... uh reacting to a future in flux, but it's kind of during the planning of 52 that the writers decide there's actually something else going on with Skeets. And Skeets is not necessarily malfunctioning. Yeah. There might be something else going on here. Another lost metaphor, but think about it like uh, Walt having powers. Yeah. And being told that Walt is special. Something that the writers and the showrunners of the show never, ever, ever, ever explain. Because they changed their minds. Did you ever see that post-series, like, 11-minute episode? No. My boyfriend, David, who was really, really into Lost when he was a teenager, explained it to me while we were falling asleep the other day, but I never actually saw it myself. Oh, it's interesting. It it, it basically exists to wrap up kind of the Walt and Hurley storylines. Thank God. (laughs) There's a bit about the polar bear in there. And it's it's kind of a thing they made just for the fans who are deeply into the lore of Lost to kind of put the questions keeping them up at night at bed. Yeah. And uh, I appreciated it after binging the whole show. I would recommend seeking that out. A response to the Lostpedia people that they had been using yeah. the knowledge of, essentially, to be like, we're so sorry for never resolving this. <laughs> Yeah, I always figured the problem with Walt was that they decided to make a show with a really short timeline take place over multiple years, and that involved a kid who would grow up in real time. I mean, that's a big problem. The <laughs> other thing I heard, that's like, a, it's a huge problem, you know, it's why yeah. whenever I see a child introduced in a show, I'm like, there's they're going to disappear for a little while, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. But another problem that I heard, uh, I think Lindelof, Damon Lindelof said, was that I believe it was him, it might have been another one of the writers, was that they were teasing him having special powers and they realized that they'd have to reorient the entire plot around the one person that had special powers. Right. And they didn't necessarily want to do that. They had an ensemble cast here. Yeah. It's a little similar to what's happening with Booster Gold in these early issues where a glitch in the time stream is something that shows up in a lot of different media that involves time travel. Sure. And- They just realized while they were planning it, they just didn't want to write that because it shows up so frequently. Time travel's hard. It's hard to write. There's a lot of rules. The best expression of time travel to me is Looper. And in that movie, they they say, we're gonna if we start talking about how it works, we're gonna sit here making models out of straws. So we just gotta stop. We can't keep explaining it. Well, one further, my favorite is the movie Primer, where the entire oh, thing is about how time travel works, and that's the story. You don't have to tell another story on top of it. Time travel itself is weird enough yeah. that the whole movie can be about explaining that. Absolutely. You know, that's the duality of man. You either want detailed rules on how time travel works, or you don't want to hear about it at all. At all. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes you want both. Sometimes you want either. The world is a complex panoply that has room for many flavors. You know, I think it's really interesting, though. I think it's the right choice because Booster Gold is a character. Time travel really doesn't come into it very much. The whole joke is that he's a hypercapitalist. He doesn't need to be a hypercapitalist who also has to deal with the time stream. That just doesn't, it doesn't mesh exactly. Just let him go back in time the one time. You say that, but some of Jeff John's best work after 52 is 
Booster Gold, the time traveler. Interesting. Where uh, the whole concept is that he's this very important hero to the time stream whose secret identity is an embarrassing superhero who only cares about money. Okay, but that builds on the joke, right? Yeah. Like the joke has to be essentially built around the idea of him being a buffoon. Yeah, the I, the idea is the only way that villains will know not to screw with you in order to destroy the timeline is if they write you off as a complete joke. Yeah. It reminds me again, like another example of how influential this era of comics is to what DC is trying to do outside of comics. That's essentially the idea of like Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Where all those people are huge messes, but they're constantly saving the time stream. A show basically built for Booster Gold that he only shows up in the last episode of. <laughs> it's so upsetting. <laughs> and the casting is perfect. It's also. so good. It's, oh my god, I will have a bonus episode about Legends of Tomorrow for sure, sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. Absolutely. I'll be right there. I I could talk all day about the one episode where Constantine creates a paradox by trying to kick his dad in the nuts. It's... (laughs) It's so good. The famous one that everyone's heard of is, of course, uh, I think it's Gorilla Grad going back in time to kill Obama. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, like, the We may sheer... reference that on every episode of this show. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like the chutzpah. You have Barack to have. Barack Obama, it will almost be an honor to kill you. <laughs> it's so funny. I can think about that, like, all day long. <laughs> oh, man. It was a miracle that that show existed, and I, I think... It, it is like Booster Gold in that it was so good, it had to be a secret. <laughs> yeah, they, there had to be nobody paying attention. Absolutely, absolutely. Or otherwise, I couldn't have gotten away with the kinds of things they were doing constantly on that show, because it was just very silly. Oh, man. Uh, the reason they were able to get away with it is because it was only characters that nobody cared about. They yeah. had, like, Commander Steel on there. They had yeah. Vixen's Grandma on there. Yeah, like... <laughs> It's, again, like, so reminiscent of 52 here. They had you know? Heat Wave, but not Captain Cold. Yeah, it you know, it's like, it, I, you know, the more <laughs> I think about it, the more I feel like they were taking direct inspiration from the way 52 did it, right? Yeah. Take a bunch of B and C listers, and then you can kind of do whatever you want. Exactly. Because no one's invested in that. Right, right. Like, their biggest get was Constantine. Yeah, uh. and Constantine had another show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so now we get back to the Renee Montoya story where we're getting narration from her perspective. She's becoming the main character here. I really, really like the storyline. I think it is my favorite storyline out of any of them. And part of it has to do with Renee Montoya's oh, yeah. like narration. The voice here is really perfect. And part of that is because Rucka had developed this voice for so long in Gotham Central. But this is more of a like a... Uh, a nasty like Dashiell Hammett story than the police procedural they were doing before. Absolutely. So she has one of my favorite lines in this whole in this whole issue. I think it might be my favorite line that anyone says in the entire issue, which is uh, the question is trying is basically grilling her and being like, "You used to be more than this. You used to have this job." Blah blah blah. And she's like, "I've got a new job, and it's called being a drunk." <laughs> <laughs> 
So you are a detective after all. No, I'm not. I've got a new job. It's, yeah, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> right yeah. There. It's so funny. I love it. It's, God. it's perfect. It's a perfect encapsulation of where this character has ended up. Oh, and it's I love done it. with a lot of humor. I think their riffing is really, really fantastic. I like these two characters together so much. Yeah, this is the thing I've been craving since I first read it. It's the Vic and Renee book is the book I've been dying for since 2006. And yeah. this is the the only place we get it. It's it's perfect. I think it's generally perfect. This is also my favorite scene in the book when the question sh- uh, disappears in a puff of question mark shaped smoke. I love that. And Renee's like, I still have questions. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Uh, they, they just can't resist. You got to put the question jokes in there. It's it's too fun not to do. It's so hard not to read all of like the my mental voice in my brain is Odo from Deep Space Nine, that guy who also plays him in Justice League Unlimited. I forget the name of the actor. Um, oh, Rick- Jeffrey Combs? Jeffrey Combs. I just Jeffrey Combs his- doesn't play Odo, but uh, oh. he does play a bunch of smaller roles in Deep Space Nine. Oh uh, gosh, bit darn gay it. player characters. Please don't email me about this. Odo is Renee Auber something. Yeah, Renee Aubergine. Not Aubergine. That's an eggplant. <laughs> I do not know enough about Star Trek. I never claim to be a Star Trek expert, but I uh, do know that that's not Jeffrey Combs. Okay. Well, I just hear the Justice League Unlimited voice in my head when I read this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 100% Jeffrey Combs. This comic is coming off the success of Justice League Unlimited. It's the reason I started reading it. Yeah. I wanted more of this weird faceless guy, and I was getting it here. Yeah. I mean, I think it is a very good example of synergy with the cartoon. The cartoon Mm -hmm. is very, very good. Oh, it holds up. It really does. Like, I watched all of the Justice League cartoon, and I was really, really impressed recently because uh, my partner had never seen it. And then we started watching Unlimited, and oh, the treat. you just get, like, the entire span of all the different kinds of stories you can tell with the characters in mm-hmm. DC in a way that's kid-friendly but also respects your intelligence if you're an adult. It's the first real showcase you get outside of the comics themselves of what the DC universe is as a whole. Before this, you had super friends, and basically that was it. Yeah, you know, and while the individual hero-focused books, or not books, the individual hero-focused shows, like Superman the Animated Series and Batman the Animated Series, they do occasionally do these deep dives and like have random little characters that you might not have heard of if you are not deeply familiar with the comics. It's nothing compared to what happens in Justice League Unlimited. It's yeah. just nothing, you know? Justice League, the brilliant thing they do in JLU is they give you these unfamiliar characters, but they ground them by putting a more familiar character in the team up. A Batman will be there or a Superman will be there. And that's something that Batman the Brave and the Bold picks up on in 2010, where that character is always Batman because the state of DC right now is that Batman is the only guy people care about. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't think that's a good state of affairs, but it's like the corporate aspect of this to me is also really interesting because that occurs because Christopher Nolan's Batman movies are so mind-blowingly popular. Mm -hmm. And then that leads into another total landscape where they realize that to capitalize on that, they need to refocus their comics so that Batman becomes a lot more significant. And then also that the movie watchers who don't read any other comics can just join that continuity without having to worry too much. And it really warps things, you know? know, For for many years, Gita, for 13 years, what I could have added to that was, you know, The Dark Knight is the most successful movie that Warner Brothers has ever made, but that's not (laughs) true anymore. It's Barbie, baby. It's Barbie! 
oh my god, a completely different kind of IP feature. And like you see, like comic starts it all. And what's so interesting is Barbie feels like as a movie feels very comic booky. Yeah. It has all these hand-painted props and like hand-painted backdrops and the characters are drawn in these really capital letter broad strokes very deliberately. And these like Easter egg-y continuity references for like Barbie heads. Yes, like even like there's a a random commercial, fake commercial for a Barbie product. I don't want to ruin it because it's such a funny joke, but it's done in the style of a Barbie commercial I remember seeing as a child. Yeah. Oh, God, there's so much in it. I could do a Barbie episode. Oh, my God, we might have to. God, what a movie. When I walked out of Barbie, I overheard two different mothers explaining to their children what patriarchy was. That's so, That is the kind of movie Barbie is. (laughs) It's incredible. Like, I think they really, in the movie, do come up with a very good in-movie explanation of the patriarchy. It's like Ken saying horses are man extenders. (laughs) 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 Made me laugh for days. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, speaking of man extenders, uh, we're getting into our last uh, storyline here in 52. Where a different kind of extension of a man is occurring. Oh, so we return to the elongated man yes. mystery, and we get more into what he's investigating. And it turns out we finally see how his wife's grave was defaced. We didn't see it. We just know that his grave was defaced. It's been defaced with an upside down Superman symbol. And Dibney does a little explaining. He says, right side up, the super for symbol man, the super for symbol man. The symbol for Superman. <laughs> I'm sorry. Please keep the super for symbol man in the show. That's like a very good malapropriasm. Yes. I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and super for symbol man. <laughs> but the symbol for Superman right side up, as we've heard in many different facets of Superman media and Kryptonian, that means hope. But upside down, we learn from Dibney it means resurrection. So there is a cult of resurrection and they're trying to get Ralph's attention. And his attention has certainly been gotten. This cult is kind of a mystery because it seems heavily Kryptonian influenced, but what Kryptonian is around to like spread this? Like the the priestess of it appears to be Cassie Sandsmark. Uh, who is Superboy's girlfriend from the Teen Titans comics at the time. A Superboy being the clone of Superman, Connell, who died in Infinite Crisis. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about what Cassie's going through at this point? Cassie's having a bad time. Just yeah. like Ralph, she's having a bad time. So Cassie, they consummated their relationship, which was really on again, off again, very typical. So Young Justice, where these two characters interacted the most, had the tone of a CW show, where the romance was always getting stop-started by other interpersonal issues they were having. Think about it like Roswell, I would say. Right. The original Roswell, where characters almost start dating- A reference everyone gets. <laughs> Ros- the original Roswell's really great. It's got a young Katherine Heigl. She's fantastic. She's an alien in it. It's really great. Um, it's really great up until the moment the two characters start dating and then it becomes boring, which is the case for so many of these shows, because the real tension is, will they or won't they? Luckily, in The Young Justice, there was a lot of other stuff going on that made the book a lot more fun. Yeah, will they, won't they alien invasion? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 
when they finally got to the point where they became a real couple and not just two teenagers flirting with each other, you know, doing the slap slap kiss kind of thing, they immediately afterwards, Superboy dies. <laughs> like, how much does that yeah, suck? Th- this, this, would be in, uh, this would be in Teen Titans, not Young Justice. Yeah. yeah. So, like, they have, like, there is a scene in Infinite Crisis where, like, they have sex and the next day Superboy dies. <laughs> uh, so, apparently, in that one night where they had sex with each other, she caught some kind of weird religion from him that she has now, like, become the sole uh, administrator of. Yeah. That, like, people around the world have somehow uh, glommed onto in these two weeks since Infinite Crisis has occurred. It's really bizarre. Uh, but it's no weirder than any other elongated man story if you had read those in the 60s. Absolutely inexplicable. I certainly can't explain it. Uh, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's they true. needed to get they needed to give him a weird mystery and this is a weird mystery unfortunately for cassandra Sandsmark fans it's not one that serves a character they're invested in you know when we get to our our, our blackboard i'll go i'll go a little bit deeper on cassandra Sandsmark, a character yeah, i have a do. deep a deep a deep affection for do you want to do that before we get into the backup feature yeah, why don't we take a visit to the blackboard for Let's a second? Let's go to the blackboard, baby. All right. Uh, you go first. So the thing I want to throw up on the blackboard for this episode is Cassandra Sandsmark. And one of the very first comics I read all the way through was Young Justice. I love it. It is very funny. It's very lighthearted. It draws its teenage characters with a lot of depth, even though it's mainly a humor-focused book. One of those characters was Cassandra Sandsmark. And she is one of the Wonder uh, Wonder Girls that has shown yes. up. Her exact origin, I don't exactly remember. I believe she was just a big fan of Wonder yeah. Wonder Woman and started dressing up as her. She, eventually- she was the daughter of Helena Sandsmark, who helps introduce Wonder Woman to the modern world. But she's also a kind of historian. And uh, Cassandra starts stealing her mom's ancient Greek artifacts to, like, (laughs) take powers from them. And she wears this black wig and these goofy glasses, and she's this little gremlin. And that's kind of my favorite era of hers. I know. She's, like, adorable in the goggles and the gloves. She looks like a kid playing dress-up, which really works for Young Justice tonally because it's all about little kids who are kind of playing in an adult's world where – they are a little bit out of their depth, but they are trying really, really hard. It it works very well. Over the Young Justice, she becomes more adult, right? She stops wearing the, the goggles and the wig. She stops trying to pretend to be Wonder Woman and starts becoming her own person. And it's a very, I think it's a pretty well-expressed narrative arc of like growing up. I like that, all that rigmarole. But... I feel like over time, especially as the DC Comics universe starts to emphasize Donna Troy's role as Wonder Girl and then Donna Troy, just Donna Troy. Or Troya. Troya. Troya is actually a pretty good name, but she's had mm-hmm. some pretty bad ones also. They, they de-emphasized what Cassie Smart, uh, Cassie, Cassie Sandsmark. is. Cassie Sandsmark and who she is and what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And eventually she becomes like many female characters who end up in a romance story with other other male characters she becomes essentially an accessory to superboy especially here and it's it's such a shame because she has this start as a real 
like the the kind of DC Comics superheroine that I really enjoy, like spoiler, someone who is just kind of doing it for themselves, who is really inspired by the heroism that they see, and it makes them want to be a hero. Mm -hmm. And I can't get enough of that stuff. I absolutely love it. Well, I love spoiler because she's doing it out of spite. Yeah, well, she's a spoiler, right? (laughs) (laughs) I saw a very good panel recently while I was just Googling pictures of spoiler for no reason. (laughs) And As like, you do. And she just says, spoiler alert, I'm going to break your jaw. <laughs> like, I love that. I love that She's for you. great. But, you know, Cassie, like, had a lot of potential, but it does get wasted. I think she is a, a victim of, again, an editor coming in and wanting to change DC Comics into the way it was when he remembered it best. Yeah. And that means... Just getting rid of these other legacy characters, even though Donna Troy's relationship to Wonder Woman, she's completely eclipsed that by this point in time. Yeah. You know, Donna, we are, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but Donna Troy has no relationship to Wonder Woman. Yeah. It's like very specifically, they, they, they line that out at, at a certain point where they're yeah. like, they I, I'm, I'm going to get into it later. Trust me. Uh, yeah. So uh, we'll talk about Donna Troy in a little bit. Any more thoughts about Cassie? No, she's good. Just read Young Justice. I'm going to talk about this every single episode. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I want to talk about that Vic and Renee scene for my Please. point in the blackboard. Let's throw on a blackboard. There's a point where we call back to a moment in the previous issue where Renee is like, who the hell are you? And Vic says, I asked you first. And uh, this exchange where Vic is prompting Renee to discover who she is, is not the first time we've seen this with the question – it's not the first time we've seen it in a question story by Greg Rucka. Uh, in this sense, as much as it is a sequel to Gotham Central, 52 is also a sequel to Greg Rucka's first question story, a 2000 volume called Batman Huntress Cry for Blood. Uh, now, this six-issue series, which was co-written with Denny O'Neill, who wrote the question series in the 80s, uh, so that's kind of the handoff of one major question writer to the other. This story, it's really a lot more about the question and the Huntress than it is really about Batman and Huntress. Batman is there because if you want to sell a comic, you put Batman's name in the title. Uh, this is a story about uh, Helena Bertinelli, who is the daughter of this Bertinelli crime family who sees her whole family murdered in front of her and swears vengeance. And uh, we see at a very crucial time in her life where she's about to enact that final stage of her revenge, the question shows up to ask her who she really is and kind of help steer her away from a dangerous self-destructive path that he himself was on at the beginning of the question series of the 80s, that the tutelage of Richard Dragon and Lady Shiva helped him find another way. So this is the question at the end of his own personal journey, trying to shape uh, the journey of another hero, trying to pay that rebirth forward. Because he was originally this hardline objectivist guy who evolved into this Zen Buddhist, which is kind of the coolest thing about the question. That is the redemption arc I wish all libertarians would go through. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why the question is my favorite character. He's a shitty dude who learns not to be shitty anymore. Perfect. And it's like, that's 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 what I want to be. Yeah. You don't want you don't want to know the guy I was 10 years ago. I uh, certainly don't. I like the way <laughs> you are right now. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. You would not have liked Charlton era me. You want DC era me. <laughs> I think we should all define ourselves by the different eras of what comic book brand that we used to yes, belong to. Yeah, you've got post-crisis Jaffe here in more <laughs> sense than one. 
<laughs> a literal also, post-crisis. I mean, I think I'm post-crisis, Keisha, but I think that there's many more crises yes, on the horizon. I, I am afraid you might be mid-crisis, Keisha. <laughs> might be also oh, there's a, some kind of upheaval going on in my life right now but it's all gonna be cool like so many of the greatest question stories batman hunter's cry for blood ends in failure uh the question fails to redeem helena bertinelli she does go on her quest for vengeance their budding romance is destroyed they basically never see each other again. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. This genuine passing on of his own character growth that he wanted to complete by giving that to someone else is a complete failure. And that is where we find Vic Sage in 52. He's trying the exact same thing that he tried with Helena with this other person, with uh, Renee Montoya, who also finds herself at a crossroads. This is another opportunity for me to pass on what I've learned. And now it's even more desperate for reasons we will discover, but this may be Vic Sage's last shot to do for someone else what Richard Dragon did for him. That's beautiful. I really like that there's a pretty consistent continuity of this character yeah. throughout these couple of stories. I, It's again, it's a, something allowing this one writer to follow Renee and Vic Sage through their emotional journey over the many years is one of the huge strengths of 52, I think. And I, even though 52 has like a, not 52 in general, but like DC Comics in general has this thing where characters are generally sort of the same ish age forever, like most comic books, they do allow them to like grow and change and have like life developments happen. And Sometimes, I think that makes, yeah. You know, unless you're Batman. But Unless yeah. you're Batman, and then you have PTSD forever. Right. <laughs> you know, he's the only person that's not allowed to see a therapist. Yeah, he's uh, perpetually caught between anger and bargaining, is how I once put it. Yeah, no, that's pretty accurate. You know, in a way, it's realistic because some people do never recover from their traumas, but yeah. also you get to the precipice with Batman so many different times. And to me, like my favorite version of Batman is the one where he has realized that something has to change. And mm -hmm. that's when he begins mentoring children who have also gone through extreme trauma. Like that to me is like the best version of Batman. But he always gets snapped back yeah. to not yet realizing that over and over that again. That dichotomy between loner Batman and Bat Dad. Yeah. I like a Bat Fam, personally. Yeah. I also like a Bat Fam. Everybody read Wayne Family Adventures if you're not reading that. <laughs> Absolutely. What a book. Yes. What a series. You know, it's there are like four different Webtoon series that DC launched, and that's the only one that hasn't been canceled. Uh, that makes a lot of sense for yeah. reasons we've already discussed. <laughs> like, yeah. What are people interested in? It's Batman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, if you want to sell a book, put Batman's name in the title. That's a big part of it. But also a big part of it is the casual family dynamics. That's what people are craving. It's what they're not getting from the main That's books. like what the Webtoon form was really built for, honestly, right. too, is like sort of really casual fun things you read on your commute like that's that's what people like you know fluff yes you know people love fluff fluff has its uses fluff is not completely useless and i feel like no. if you could really i'm glad that dc is doing webtoons because it's a growing market but it's also like you have to recognize what people they want melodrama or they want fluff and there's no in between you need them both there's room to accommodate multiple flavors yes. and i'm glad that market exists over there because it 
it, w- it was something that's desperately needed. I mean, Teen Titans Go has been the most popular thing DC has been doing for a decade. Yeah. And that's basically a show about what the Teen Titans do when they're not fighting crime. It's just hijinks. It's yeah, literally it's just, just hijinks. It's just all hijinks all the time. And you know, I get it. I do get it. If you put fun personalities in uh, situations, that's the basis of situational comedies. Like, come yeah. on. You know? it's, it's the name of the thing. Yeah. You got to put some characters in situations. Bada bing, bada boom. There you go. <laughs> From now on, for the rest of the series, uh, there are going to be backup stories to every issue of 52. Because like Gita and myself, uh, 52 was an onboarding moment for many people getting into the DC universe. Uh, so in the back of many of these issues, we're going to have these sort of two page origin stories for all these different important and, uh, more obscure characters. Uh, but for the first 10 installments of this, so from issues t- two through 11, uh, we are going to get these four page backup stories that in their fashion attempt to explain the entire history of the DC universe. Uh, it's a tall order. And yeah. this first issue starts this affair by throwing us into the most confusing storyline possible, which is a choice. <laughs> I don't know why they did it this way. I really, really don't. Uh, especially because, like, after these backups are finished, I don't know that, like, the rest of the people that worked at DC got the memo. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure anybody learned anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but before we get into it, let's talk talent. Uh, these backups were uh, written and drawn by Dan Jurgens, uh, best known as one of the architects of 90 Superman, uh, the death and return of Superman story arc, and the sole creator of Booster Gold. Dan Jurgens is working on this book, but not on Booster Gold. Go That's figure. That's so wild. His illustrations are really lovely and they they do a lot of work to make some of the more confusing stuff make sense i love jurgen stuff uh he's always dependable for a good story uh he's given way too big a task here to explain the entire history of the dc universe in four page backups but he performs admirably giving his space uh the this entire thing is reminiscent of a two volume series that Marv Wolfman and George Perez put out right after Crisis on Infinite Earths called The History of the DC Universe, which in retrospect, I think is a more interesting read than Crisis on Infinite yes. Earths. I am a huge sucker for Perez's pencils. I yeah. I, I just really absolutely love them. And oh, it's just beautiful to, even just to look at. Spread after spread after spread. It's gorgeous. I think my my former boss, Tim Marchman, used to describe the sort of pencil work that was going on in that era as just mind-blowing. Like, it's just mm-hmm. absolutely unmatched, even to this day, where uh, the level of technology that artists have access to has expanded so greatly. Like, I I love it. The inks over Jurgen's pencils are by Art Tiber, best known for inking a bunch of X-Men books in the 90s, and he was previously on Infinite Crisis, like much of this team. The colors are by Jeremy Cox, who's also worked on Promethea and Grendel and DMZ, and uh, also by Guy Major, who you'll recognize, Gita, from a lot of coloring on Grant Morrison's Batman. Oh! So yeah, Guy Major is here doing a bunch of the colors. Editors included Janine Schaefer, who was an assistant editor at DC before moving to Marvel in 2008 and uh, went on to be Boom Studios executive editor from 2018 to 2021. There was Ivan Cohen, who would go on to co-create the non-binary speedster Kid Quick for the future state line of comics in like 2021. 
Uh, Jesse Quick's story is still being told in modern DC comics. And Eddie Berganza, who is exposed as a serial sexual harasser within the company by BuzzFeed in 2017 and was fired right after the story went public. Yep, that is an incredible BuzzFeed investigation. It's such a shame that BuzzFeed shuttered their news or like their news side of the business because they were doing really good work on yeah. stuff that matters, but that larger outlets won't necessarily cover. Like, DC is an enormous corporation. They should be covered seriously, mm-hmm. even though it is a niche medium. And I was so proud that we had journalists that were willing to take the stories of these workers seriously. And it's just a shame that we just have one fewer outlet willing to tell these stories. But I think you should read it just to get an appreciation for the level of journalism. Like, it's really a very well-written story, written with a lot of sensitivity towards the victims. Absolutely. It's one of the best pieces of comic journalism I've ever read, and I'm sorry to see BuzzFeed go. And hopefully there will be more outlets for stuff like that in the future. I hope so, too. Uh, Maybe you're listening to it right now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We'll know by the time this episode comes out. (laughs) We'll know. We'll know by the time this episode happens. Anyway, uh, this story opens on Donna Troy, a lady we've referenced, the first Wonder Girl, or is she? Now- (laughs) Here's the deal with Donna Troy. Can I have like 20 or 30 minutes to talk about the deal with Donna Troy, please? Honestly, I would love that because who is Donna Troy has became like- That is the serial question. Yeah, it's like a meme. There are multiple stories literally called who is Donna Troy. Yes, and it's never clear by the end of those stories who she is. So please tell me. Donna Troy is an editorial mistake. Here is how Donna Troy started. Uh, back when Bob Haney was creating the Teen Titans back in the 60s, uh, he was drafting all the kid sidekicks. There was Robin, there was Aqualad, there was Speedy. And uh, he wanted to put Wonder Girl on the book, uh, Wonder Woman's kid sidekick, who sometimes showed up in Robert Conacher's Wonder Woman comics. But what he didn't know about Wonder Girl at the time is that in those Robert Conagher stories about Wonder Woman hanging out with Wonder Girl and Wonder Tot, those were actually all the same character. It was one, it was Diana of Themyscira at three different points in her own personal timeline hanging out with her past selves. <laughs> I love comic books. Go on. <laughs> so they had to invent this character named Donna Troy, who was the modern Wonder Girl. Uh, to be like the stand-in for young Diana for this team. Uh, later they made up this origin for her that she was this girl who was rescued by a, from a fire and, uh, then grew up on Themyscira and through like science experiments was made into an Amazonian. Um, there were all kinds of super scientists on Themyscira at the time. It, it was a whole element of Paradise Island that has been kind of lost to time. There was this whole thing with the purple raid there and Reformation Island, but it used to be a place as much about super science as it is about mythology, but that angle has kind of been lost since the George Perez relaunch. Uh, but before then, there was this super science angle that gave Donna Troy these super Wonder Woman powers. The rewrite of Donna Troy's origin would be that she was actually empowered by like the titans of myth, like Cronus and the like, who were like kind of reseeding certain mortals to like carry on their powers and 
Donna Troy was one of them. And there were a whole bunch of revisions to her origin like that. There was a recent one where she was made of clay by this sect of Amazonians as an emergency uh, solution to if Wonder Woman went rogue to stop her, kind of like an echo of Connell's origin, but mm-hmm. for Wonder Woman, uh, it, it's just like since she was created, people have been trying to figure out what Donna Troy's deal was. So for this story, as we learned during a tie in to Infinite Crisis, uh, Donna Troy's whole thing is that she is aware of all the different multiple origin stories she's ever had. She alone is aware of every single version of herself that exists throughout hypertime, throughout the multiverse, throughout continuity. She is what Harbinger was before her in Crisis on Infinite Earths, meant to be the story keeper for the entire universe. So when we have to go through the history of the DC universe here, Dan Jurgens casts Donna Troy as the person who has to chronicle the history as we understand it. Which is like a good choice, I think, in terms of the story. But a lot to understand. Yeah, this deserved to be, I mean, they're great backups in that they really do enhance the story that 52 is telling. Like you, 52 is so wrapped up in the entire history of the crisis timeline of DC that it's really necessary for readers who haven't read these things or aren't familiar with them. At the time, stuff like fan wikis were not quite so proliferated and the sort of nerd knowledge was a lot more niche. So it's good to do this, but four pages is not enough time. (laughs) No. Uh, So I can quickly go over the points that Dan goes through here. He starts us off with uh, the ancient lore of the Guardians of the Universe, which we originally started seeing around the 80s in like Tales of the Green Lantern Corps and played a major role in Crisis on Infinite Earths, where one of the earliest sentient races in the universe, the Maltusians, decided to take it upon themselves to police the universe uh, because one of them, this guy called Krona, accidentally fucked everything up by trying to go back in time to witness the birth of the universe to see how it was created and in doing so accidentally created the concept of evil. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. It's the original sin of the DC universe. Yes. And uh, there are multiple expressions of what actually happened there. There was this recent thing in Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's Dark Knight's Death Metal where we find out there was this race called the Hands that is responsible for creating entire realities. And there was this rogue hand named Perpetua who decided, I'm going to make a universe that is designed to constantly reboot. And that is going to keep me powerful. And that's the true origin of the DC universe. But that's not something that would come into play until like 2019. So we don't even have to think about that. I'm just putting this here in case someone is listening and goes, what about Perpetua? Well, that's what's going on with Perpetua. Listen, we know and you don't have to email us about it. You don't, don't email us about Perpetua. Perpetua. I know who <laughs> Perpetua is. That's the point. Okay. Uh, so because of this bad thing Krona did, the Guardians decide, okay, it's our job to police the universe, and they become the space cops. And to this uh, end, they create the Manhunters, uh, who are these recurring kind of vigilantes who have been showing up in DC Comics since the 40s, but became this sci-fi concept in the 80s. They're these robots who go rogue and accidentally decide, oh, we're going to kill everybody so that way nobody can do evil. And uh, that was a bad idea. Then they create the Green Lantern Corps. 
And uh, then we quickly speed through the early heroes of the DC universe. We get Anthro, the caveman hero who first showed up in the 60s in Showcase. We get Themyscira. We see Silent Knight, a sword and sorcery hero who showed up in early issues of The Brave and the Bold. We see Jonah Hex, one of my problematic faves. Jonah Hex is a lot of fun, but problematic fave for sure. <laughs> yeah. Enemy Ace, another problematic fave, a uh, World War One German fighter pilot. Uh <laughs> Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, one interesting thing about some of the characters you just mentioned, two of them, Jonah Hex and uh, Cronus, the, the first Superman. Anthro. Anthro, right. They both show up in Grant Morrison's previous, like, expansive metatextual uh, a series, Seven Soldiers of Victory. Sure. Actually. They become sort of characters that specific plot points hinge upon because – Morrison has this fascination with the the past and the cosmology of the DC universe and trying to make it all make sense. Anthro would also go on to play a major role in Morrison's final crisis and the return of Bruce Wayne. You know, in a lot of ways, that whole cycle is something that they kicked off in their Justice League book, which then flowed into Seven Soldiers, Final Crisis, Death and Return of Bruce Wayne. And that takes us to the debuts of two Supermans, a Superman of Earth-1 and a Superman of Earth-2. And Donna Troy is very confused about that, but any forthcoming answers about that will be coming next week. Some of the Superman of Earth-1 and Earth-2 stuff is answered sort of kind of in Infinite Crisis. But again, I'm not sure how much it all makes sense now. Uh, which is it's something that the next issue will attempt to explain the differences between Earth One and Earth Two. Yeah, um, we went through it briefly, I believe, in our Zero episode, uh, where I kind of tried to explain the history of the DC universe myself with the whole Barry Allen thing. Uh, but yeah, it's something we'll probably get into next week. Yeah, it becomes increasingly important to the DC universe going forward from here, and is something that we personally saw in the Flash movie become like a major linchpin of what they're trying to do outside of the comics, which we will talk about behind a paywall. Yes. Here's something we won't be talking about behind a paywall. Your questions. It's time (laughs) for asking the questions. This is the point in every episode where we take a few questions from our mailbag submitted to us at 52mailbag at gmail.com. And uh, give you our answers to your burning questions about 52, DC Comics, comics in general, superheroes, anything you want to ask us. Our first question comes from Daniel F., who says, okay, real question. 52, especially the booster storyline, relies a lot on some mysteries. Who is Supernova? What's going on with Skeets? Who is Batwoman? What's up with the number 52? This event introduces the notorious Rip Hunter chalkboard that gets wheeled out seemingly nonstop to try to get people excited about stuff in current comics. I tend to roll my eyes a lot at this stuff normally, but it really works for me in 52. Is it because it was any different and better, or was I just younger and less jaded about this shit? You know, I've got some ideas about this. So for me, one, especially all of the things that you just mentioned, they actually answer those questions and they pull it off. Like, that's what makes it better in a lot of ways, right? It works. It works. They had the answers for those questions ready. But also, it has to do with how the story is told. I also roll my eyes at sort of big mystery box stuff, uh, because I think a lot of it in any medium, movies, comics, television, is not done very well. I especially 
really despise J.J. Abrams for that stuff. The the Star Wars uh, sequel trilogy that he was instrumental in sort of setting up. By the time you get to the end, you realize he just didn't know the answer to the questions that he he posed. I will not even talk about Rise of Skywalker for money. You can't make me. <laughs> I didn't see it. I was like, I refuse. I've been burned. You're better off for it. It haunts me. Oh, God. The first two are so good. He's Abrams is really good at posing the question, but I need, as like a reader as a, or a viewer, the resolution to actually hit. Yeah. You know, I never finished Lost, and I think that that probably is the best choice I could have made at the time. I'm willing to go back and look at it again because I'm interested in the cultural phenomenon now, but I think most of the time what you see with the mystery box format is a good setup, but no payoff. Here, especially the things that you like, who is Supernova? There is an answer to that question. It makes sense. It's satisfying within the story. What is going on with Skeets? We learned that and it has an answer and it is satisfying. Who is Batwoman? I mean, Batwoman would end up becoming a truly iconic character within DC Comics. Sure. So it feels like just the execution is what mattered. Absolutely. The fact that we have the be- some of the best writers in the history of comics all working together on this series, it certainly helps. Yeah. Their bona fides speak for themselves. Couldn't hurt. Peter C. asks, were you a fan of the lesser known heroes of the series before first reading 52? For me, it really came down to Booster Gold Mm because I was shipping him with Blue Beetle. (laughs) Everybody was. You know, I mean, it was very, very, very common ship if you were involved in fandom on LiveJournal at the The time. The Stan's Daily scene. Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of chemistry and you wanted them to kiss. I wanted them to kiss personally. And I was devastated after the Countdown to Infinite Crisis where Ted Gord, unfortunately, makes a heroic sacrifice. And I wanted to read more about Booster and I picked this up because Booster was going to be in it. I knew about Ralph Dibney because of Identity Crisis, but a lot of these like C-listers I'd never heard of before. And I feel like my comic book reading and just sort of my entertainment in general was enriched by having these com- these characters brought up to the forefront. I was not a big follower of comics until 52. I read some Superman stuff in the late 90s, uh, but for the, from 2000 to 2006, the thing I was mostly into was the cartoons. I would watch Batman the Animated Series, I'd watch Batman Beyond, I'd watch Superman the Animated Series, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, Static Shock. Um, to a lesser extent, the Zeta Project. Remember the Zeta Project? No. Oh my god. It's like one the of the Zeta few Project things you've was mentioned. a spin-off of Batman Beyond about this robot they made who <gasps> wanted to be a guy. And he becomes like a fugitive, and he has these two seasons of his own adventures, and occasionally he runs into Terry. You just blew my mind. Oh, my God. Do you remember it now? You remember the I Zeta do Project? remember it now. I remember being like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And then not watching it. <laughs> it's not a good show, but it's part <laughs> of that whole universe. So I watched it. Y- you want to know if I watched the Lobo web series? I sure did. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I could do a whole episode about Gotham Girls. Oh, Gotham Girls was pretty cute. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, doomed from the start, right? (laughs) Lordy, lordy. Oh, that early Flash animation. My God. It was ambitious to think that you could put a cartoon on the internet at that time. Yeah. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. 
sub home star runner quality coming from Warner Brothers Studios. It really looked like paper dolls. Like, yeah, it, it's like the end of Kaya Kano where they literally have to animate everything with paper dolls because they don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the stuff I was into, especially Justice League Unlimited. And my favorite characters from there were The Question and to a lesser extent Booster Gold from the episode The Greatest Story Never Told. It's a classic. Elongated Man is in that episode too. If you only ever watch one episode, you should watch more of them. But you should watch that one, I would say. <laughs> um, I, I would say Question Authority. That's my favorite. That's but another incredible one. <laughs> that, that, that's the episode that made me a freak. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just activated part of your brain forever. <laughs> that, that's like the moment where Harvey Dent gets acid splashed in his face but yeah. for me. Yeah, but in a good way? In a good way. <laughs> Happy acid. <laughs> Happy acid. <laughs> oh man uh one of my favorite things from batman the audio adventures which is a great podcast that uh, you can listen to on max or on wherever podcasts are available is this revelation at the end of season one where we find out that when the joker fell into that vat it actually didn't affect his psyche at all it just bleached his skin and he decided to use it as an excuse to hurt people that's so good that's so great (laughs) (laughs) he was like ah shit anyway batman's like i did the same thing to myself to see how it would affect my psyche and it didn't this is just you this is your problem freak from the start (laughs) oh that's the best explanation of joker i've ever heard (laughs) batman the audio adventures is so fucking good written by dennis mcnicholas who's a uh veteran saturday night live writer oh Uh, perfect uh keenan thompson plays commissioner gordon oh perfect he's so good oh I've my gotta god listen to this yeah you gotta oh my listen god. to this absolutely 100 recommended you know one of the things that this podcast is doing is giving me a to read and to listen to list that's like hundreds of miles long that's every conversation with me my man yeah uh, pretty it, much. it's just gonna happen uh anyway before I got sidetracked, that's how I was into the question in Booster Gold. It was through animation. It's also how I got into Batman, through animation. And I think that's true for a lot of millennials uh, yeah. that Bruce, Tim, and Paul Dini were their gateway into this world. But no, I wasn't a big Animal Man comic reader at the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like Gita has been saying, uh, 52 kind of has the same mission statement as Justice League Unlimited of – introducing you to all of these lesser known characters so you're going to see a lot of overlap between the characters featured in one and the characters featured in another so it's kind of a natural point where it it was a perfect moment where the dc animated universe had essentially ended in 2006 and we were like well what next here's the comics and it's just this rare moment of intermedia synergy that led to where we are now You know, it's like the good ending of what Marvel has been trying to do with the MCU, right? Yeah. Where you can jump from one medium to the other and it enriches each other. Yes. Instead of what has been happening with the MCU where they essentially just rip off a whole bunch of really talented artists and writers and uh, make millions of dollars for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes inscrutable if you like try at all to, to jump from one medium to the other. It just doesn't make any sense. And you have no idea what's going on. Doesn't work. But yeah, there's a lot more effort with DC to kind of keep what's coming out from the movies right now in some kind of line with what's happening in the comics. There's a lot of stuff happening in the current Blue Beetle comics. We'll hopefully speak to the current writer of Blue Beetle soon about that uh, based on what's happening in the movies. Yeah. Uh, there's synergy between them. Yeah. It's none. It feels less cynical 
than the sort of Disney-led version of this idea. You know, especially you also see it in Star Wars, right? Where Ahsoka, the show that I haven't watched, is trying to create an expanded universe with all the other television shows so that you watch the other television shows so that Disney can make more money off of Disney+. Plus. Yeah. Here, it actually feels like people who like these characters a lot (laughs) are working on them. And they want you to get invested in the stories, not invested in the corporate IP. Yeah, Ahsoka is both Star Wars Rebels Season 5 and Star Wars The Clone Wars Season 16. Yeah. So I would not recommend watching it unless you're deeply into, like, their CGI cartoons. But if you are, it's a good time. It's also, it turns out, I just saw a clip of this, so I, I'm really not sure how accurate it is. It seems like it's a Mandalorian interquill also on top of yeah. this. There's just yeah. a lot of stuff hanging on its shoulders. That's mm-hmm. a very, that's a lot of things for a series to be doing yeah. at once. It's an installment in this soap opera we call Star Wars. Uh, but I almost started a Star Wars podcast, but decided to do this instead. So let's not talk anymore about Star Wars. Because <laughs> we could be doing a whole other pod, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, you know, you see, for me, what makes 52 so incredible is this is the be- the beginning of a kind of way for major corporations to utilize comics that still is going on right now. Absolutely. And this is the good version. Like, this is the version that we all, that made me excited for seeing cross-media expressions of these characters and plots. We could have had it all. <laughs> Rolling <laughs> in the deep. And we still can. Yeah, it's true. I, I have a lot. I mean, James Gunn has his flaws, but he really, 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 really likes these characters. And yeah. you can tell. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Fingers crossed. Yeah. This is my favorite part of the show, Gita, where you get to deliver your signature sign-off. Well, my good friend Alex Jaffe, I have one question for you. Yes? Are you ready? Am I ready? Are you ready? What? (laughs) (laughs) See you next time. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Fifty Two Pickup is an aftermath production created by Gita Jackson and Alex Jaffe and edited by Esper Quinn with original music by John Ahrens. To follow along with us, find Fifty Two at your local library, bookstore, comic store, or digitally on the DC Universe Infinite subscription service, or for free with a library card on Hoopla. The views and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the show's personalities and do not reflect those of DC Entertainment or Warner Brothers. Please rate and review our show wherever you can and send your questions and comments to 52mailbag at gmail.com. Never stop reading comics.